Carolyn, my wife, uh, has a number of these little bowls of dried uh, flower petals sitting around the house. And when she first sets them out, they're uh, very fragrant. You can smell them when you walk in the room. But uh, after a while, you forget they're there. And so she uh, comes along with a spoon and she stirs them up and you can, you're reminded again of the, uh, of the fragrance. Uh, that's the type of thing I would, would like to do this morning. This is a sort of potpourri this morning. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. Play catch up on some of the uh, issues that we didn't get around to talking uh, about in our marriage series. And uh, also underscore and reinforce some of the things we did talk about, the purpose of which is to, as Paul puts it, stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. And uh, I hope your, your remembrances are, are fragrant as we go back and, and look at these passages. Um, I, I, uh, I think you single people in the congregation deserve a medal. Uh, you have, uh, you've been very patient. You, you sat quietly through this series. And I know a lot of it was very difficult. Some of it, I hope, was helpful. Uh, some of the single people have said that uh, at least I know what I did wrong before when I was married. And uh, if I get married again, I hope I won't do these things again. Others who are, have never been married have said this has helped prepare them for marriage. But I know it's been tough on some of you, and I appreciate your, uh, your patience. Uh, some of you said the Song of Solomon uh, passage was especially uh, difficult, but uh, you, you'll be glad to know that our tape self-destructed, so you will never again be afflicted with that, uh, <laughs> that message. I had some interesting comments on, on Song of Solomon. One man came up and said, I've been in church. He said, I'm 35 years old. I've been a Christian for 17 years. I have never even heard anyone read a text out of the Song of Solomon on Sunday morning, much less uh, preach on that book. And then uh, one interesting comment, someone said they didn't think that that was a fit subject for uh, Sunday morning. Uh, my only response is uh, to, that that's a part of Scripture that the Apostle Paul says is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching and instruction and in righteousness. It's a part that we have to talk about. Oh, we've talked about a lot of things. I just, I, I, I think we ought to pin a medal on you single people for sitting through this. And, uh, but I hope it's been helpful for you. Thanks for being patient with us. Now, uh, I want to, to go back and underscore some of the, uh, the salient elements of our marriage series. The first we took from Genesis 1, this idea of the equality of the sexes. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. That is, mankind, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, that is, male and female, and said to them. Uh, the human race, viewed uh, in terms of the polarity of the sexes, he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Pardon me, fill the earth and subdue it and rule, rule over it. Uh, the point that I uh, tried to, to make from that passage is that uh, both men and women are, are fully human, truly human, and equal in, in God's eyes. Uh, I think that's very, very important. This text, rightly understood, once for all, deals with racism, segregation, apartheid, color barrier, barriers are all sinful, they're all wrong. 
Red, yellow, black, white. They are precious in his sight. It deals with uh, elitism and favoritism. As James makes it uh, so clear, it's wrong to play favorites. If someone comes into your assembly that's dressed nicely and obviously wealthy, it's wrong to seat them in a position of prominence and say to the the less fortunate brother, you, you go sit over there against the wall. That's wrong. Because everyone, rich, poor, is, is truly human, both created in the image of God. And sexism is wrong. It's wrong to treat a woman in any way less than, uh, than as, a, uh, as someone created in the image of God, fully human. It's wrong to denigrate women. It's wrong to demean them. Uh, it's wrong to brutalize them. It's wrong to tyrannize them. Those are all sinful, sinful reactions. Women are fully human. Men and women are equal in God's eyes. Now I say that because I think that, that sometimes that's, that's at the bottom of a lot of marital problems. Men do not treat their women as, as truly human. And sometimes that discrimination is, is blatant. Uh, it may involve physical abuse or emotional view, abuse or verbal abuse or rape or assault, battery, all of these things that, that are obviously unchristian. But sometimes we Christians can fall into it in subtle ways. There are subtle forms of discrimination that we as Christians need to guard against. I think, for example, we need to be very, very uh, watchful about our humor. Uh, ethnic jokes, we know, jokes that make Poles and Italians look bad or wrong because they're discriminatory. And I think jokes that we make about women are equally sinful. We have to be very careful because we can paint them as uh, frivolous and uh, uh, they're thinking to be irrelevant and shallow. And we make jokes about their driving and these sorts of things. That, that, uh, and sometimes women even fall into it. They laugh. It reminds me of a lot of the, of the black humor in the South. When I grew up in Texas, and, and there was a lot of black humor. And, and if there were blacks in the audience, they would laugh too. But it hurt. I, I know it hurt in looking back, uh, back on it. And women laugh, but, but it hurts. I got my comeuppance a couple of Saturdays ago. I was shopping with Carolyn in Albertsons. I... I like to uh, go with Carolyn to shop on Saturdays because they have samples in Albertson. And uh, I don't even have to eat lunch on Saturday. I just sample my way through. And I was, I was pushing my cart down an aisle, and it was fairly crowded, and I was looking for something to eat. And I crashed right into the back of a, of a woman's cart. And she turned around and, and scowled at me and said, Male driver. She's <laughs> But uh, that's, that's the sort of thing that, uh, that we need to, to be careful of. I, uh, I was listening to a marriage tape this past week. It was very well done, very interesting tape uh, by a couple. And uh, I was sort of chuckling my way through it, a lot of humor in it. But in the course of the tape, the woman uh, who was, uh, it was a husband and wife team, the woman said, well, said, I know how to solve the missile crisis. She said, all all we have to do is elect uh, a woman as president of the United States. And uh, if Russia would appoint uh, a woman premier, the USSR, 
then we wouldn't have a missile crisis because she, uh, the President of the United States would call up the Premier of USSR and she would say, I, I don't like the color of your missiles. Uh, they, they, they are ugly. Let, let's put them away. Oh, by the way, how are your grandchildren? And uh, I, 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 I kind of chuckled when I, when I heard that. But the more I thought about it, the more uneasy it made me. Because uh, any man listening to that would think, now, you know, that, that's just like a woman, you know, naive and, and unlettered, unsophisticated in, in political matters. Uh, and, and I couldn't help but think of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, now, now, is that the way Margaret Thatcher handled the Fox, Falkland crisis? Did she call up the president of Argentina and, and say, uh, uh, how, how are your grandchildren? No, as I recall, she called him up and said, if you're not out uh, of my islands by this time tomorrow, we're sending the Marines. And she did. And, and, I, and I understand that the spirit in which the thing was said was all in good fun and, and no harm was intended. But, but, you know, things like that ought to make us a little bit uneasy. Uh, I heard another tape a few weeks ago. Uh, woman was talking to me. This is actually a very good tape, too. Very good tape. Very helpful. But in the course of it, she said, uh, now, now, now women, she said, uh, if, if you're a better tennis player than your husband, uh, don't beat him on the tennis court. Uh, you, you pull your punches because, uh, you know, men have these fragile egos. And uh, you, you, don't want, you don't want to thump him out there on the tennis court. Let, let, him, let him win. And I, and I thought, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is ego anyway? You know, e ego is wrong. We, we should deny it. We should put it to death. And uh, uh, women, I, I just want to counsel you. If you're a better tennis player than your husband, you just beat his pants off. <laughs> B because, because, you see, you, you may be God's instrument to help him crucify his, his ego. See? I, I'm, I'm serious. Now, Again, I want to say in both cases, these, were, these tapes were, were done very, very well. But you know, there are these little subtle shots occasionally that, that come through that are maybe teaching us the wrong things about, uh, about the differences between men and women. Uh, another thing that I think we do unwittingly is that we attribute to men and women differences that are not biblical differences. And the one that I hear over and over again is, uh, depending on who, who states it, men are rational and women are intuitional, is the way they put it. What they mean is emotional. That women are emotional and men are rational. That's a stereotype that often is attributed to Scripture. Now, my question is, where in the world does it say that in the Bible? It doesn't say that anywhere. You can read the Bible from beginning to end, and it never says that men are rational and women are emotional. Maybe that's your experience, but, see, that's a stereotypical idea that has no scriptural uh, uh, documentation. I, I was looking at a... I'm going to be talking about 1 Peter 3 here in a minute... And I came across a, a, a comment in a commentary. Now, now, this man, actually, it's a very good commentary, and this man ought to know better than this. He says, and I quote, It is a simple fact of life that the average woman does not have the power to control her emotions as a man, and she is more frequently 
guided by emotional reactions than by rational, logical thought. The handling of deep intellectual problems is not her forte. Now, now try that one on uh, Sandra Dale O'Connor someday, uh, one of our justices. You know, that, that is not a scriptural idea. And, and it's an idea that, that we simply should not, uh, uh, we should not attribute to Scripture. Now, my question is, in what way are women different from men? That's a good question. Uh, as the French say, long live the difference. But now, what's the difference? And you're probably thinking, what's wrong with your eyes? I mean, I, obviously, they're different. They're different anatomically. They look different. And it's a good difference, nice difference. Uh, men in general are taller and they're, they're stronger than, than women. Not always, not always, but sometimes they are. When I was in high school, I went, uh, in fact, all the way through uh, grade school, junior high and high school, I was in school with, with Patsy Walker. Now, Patsy Walker was the sister of Doak Walker. And I don't know if you go back this far, but if you go way, way back, Doak Walker played football for Southern Methodist University and they played for the Detroit Lions, and he's now in the NFL Hall of Fame. He was a, he, that was back in the era when football players went both ways. He was just a tremendous athlete. And his sister, uh, who was three or four years older than, than Doak, was in school with me all the way through school. And uh, uh, she was amazing. She was a better baseball player than any of the boys in, in the elementary school, and uh, she could run faster than any of us could. If they'd had women's uh, athletics back in that day as they have now, she would have been a world-class uh, runner like, like uh, Wilma Rudolph or someone like that, just a tremendous athlete. She quit running faster than boys in high school because she realized that it wasn't cool to beat all the boys in, you know, in, in a foot race. But she, she nevertheless was an outstanding, exceptional athlete all the way through into college. So there are exceptions, you see. And again, we, can't, we, we can say that in general there's that difference, but not always, not always. We're all different. You have to look at each individual person. And there are physiological difference, differences. Women gestate, men don't. Women lactate, men don't. So there are differences, obvious differences. But what I want you to understand is the Scripture doesn't tell us anything more about the differences doesn't tell us anything at all about the differences. And whatever difference you've decided exists is a difference that, that comes right out of your own personal experience. Carolyn has a story she tells about a, a, a man that went to uh, some island in the South Pacific uh, to do research for an anthropology project, came back and made a report, and he said, uh, it's my observation that all the Indians in this particular island, uh, they always walk in single file. At least the one I saw did. <clears throat> and that's about all we can say. We, we, can, we can make some observations about the one man or the one woman that we know, but uh, beyond that we can't, uh, can't generalize very much to do so is simply to operate on the basis of stereotypes. And nobody likes stereotypes. You know what a stereotype is? It's a printing term. A stereotype is a copy of the original. The original it's put on the press, and then there are copies, exact copies. And nobody likes to think of himself as, as an exact copy or herself. I have been in my uh, life a Texan, a Californian, and an Idahoan. And I do not like to hear that Texans are liars and that Californians are crazy 
and that Idahoans are backward. But that's the sort of thing you hear all the time. And what I really don't like is, is, to, is the media presentations of preachers. They're always wimpy. Always. And I really don't like that one. I, I kind of go for the Clint Eastwood-type preacher, you know, that <laughs> ambles into town with his guns tied down, you know, and, and, and really what he is is a retired gunslinger, but at, you know, at the same time he's a preacher. And, you know, I like that. But I don't... I, the, the other... The other media stereotypes I don't like. Dorothy Sayers has an interesting thing to say uh, about st- stereotypical ideas. She says, "What is? Oh, oh she was talking about. Uh, she's talking about Freud. Freud's statement. What? What do women want? Dear God, what do women want? And she says, she says, she says, any any woman thinks that's a, a silly, frivolous statement because you never hear the reverse. What do men want? Uh, that's an irrelevant question. The question is not what do men want. It's what does this man want? What do I want? See, I, I want to cut a, catch a, a 27-inch uh, cutthroat this summer. That's what I want. But, you know, that's probably silly to you. Uh, I, I want to fish uh, No Business Creek before John Barnes sells his ranch. That's what I want to do. See, but that's not what all men want, want to do. See? Uh the question is, what does this man want to do? What does this woman want to do? That's the issue. And she puts it like this. What is repugnant to every individual is to be reckoned always as a member of some class and not as an individual person. What is unreasonable and irritating is to assume that all one's tastes and preferences have to be conditioned by the class to which one belongs. Why should a woman want to know about Aristotle? The answer is not that all women do. What women want to know as a class is irrelevant. I want to know about Aristotle, and there is nothing in a woman's shape or bodily functions that need prevent my knowledge about him. The question is not what are people like, but rather what is this person like, not what women are like, but rather what is this woman like. I think that that well states the, uh, the issue. Well, that's the first thing. I, I, you know, it's sort of a rambling thing, but I... Just want you to understand that, that men and women are equal, and men are not more equal than women. And we've got to reject Archie Bunker's idea that men are, are worth more than women. Everybody knows that. That is not true. isn't true. And as I say, so, so many marital problems are simply based on the fact that men do not treat their women like human beings. They abuse them in various ways because they do not see them as, as God sees them. Now, uh, the second thing that I would like to say uh, comes from Genesis 2. We talked uh, in Genesis 1 about the equality or the parity of the sexes. In chapter 2, we talked about marriage being a a partnership. Uh, The woman given to Adam was his helper. And as we saw, that uh, he, he, that's not a gopher. That's not someone who runs and fetches. The word helper is a powerful word in, in, in all of Semitic literature, in the Old Testament, in all of the literature that surrounds, uh, surrounds the literature of the Bible. It means someone who comes to rescue someone else. And in this case, the woman came to rescue the man from his loneliness. She is his partner. She is with him uh, in life as a, as a full partner, sharing his life. So you don't talk about my house, my kids, my job. You talk about our house, our job, our children, our life 
together. She is his sidekick. She is his friend. We, we saw in the Song of Songs that, that beautiful expression. You are my lover, he says to his bride. You are my lover and my friend. So there is the sexual side of the relationship. She is his lover. And there is the social side of the relationship. She is his friend. The best friend he has. The, uh, the most intimate friend that, uh, that he has. Uh, and then from Ephesians 5, Ron taught us about the, the order of things within the home. There was one passage that Ron did not get to talk about uh, that I would like to have you read. It's 1 Corinthians 11. Will you turn there with me, please? 1 Corinthians 11, 3. <clears throat> now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a woman, and here uh, it is singular, a woman, and the word that's used is the word that's used for both woman and wife. So we may translate it this way, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife uh, is a man, a husband, and the head of Christ is God. So there, there is an order established. This is an ordered uh, system in which we, we live. Every man, every member of the human race, man generically considered, man as male and female, Christ is the head. We, we are submissive to him. Uh, we derive any authority that we have from him. Jesus' comment to the centurion is, uh, is, is very uh, significant. The centurion said to, to Jesus, I'm a man under authority, saying to this man come and to this man go, and they, and they do what I, what I ask. And Jesus' comment was, here, here is an insightful man. Here's a man who understands. Here's a man who has faith. Because he realizes that his authority is derived from a higher authority. Any authority we have is based upon our submission to God. So everyone is submissive to God, and amen is the head of a wife. And, and what Paul is saying here is not that all men are the heads of all women. He's not saying that every woman ought to be submissive to every man. He's saying what Peter says, each woman is to be submissive to her own husband, not to everyone's husband. Just as a slave is to be submissive to his own master, not everyone's uh, master, so that the husband is given the headship of the home. So you have, you have this order set up. Christ is subject to God. Man is subject to Christ. A wife is subject to her man, to her husband. And that's the order of things that, uh, that is established. Now, Ron, Ron talked to us about this matter of, of headship. It's so extremely well. From man's side, uh, he is to provide leadership, but it's a leadership after the model of our Lord. Will you turn with me to the 10th chapter of Mark, Mark 10, 41. Two of the disciples, James and John, came to Jesus and asked if he would do for them what they asked, whatever they asked. Jesus said, what do you want me to do? They said, give us positions of authority. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left. Um, Jesus um, went on to say, them that, uh, say to them that that's uh, given to those for whom it has been prepared. 
when the other ten heard about it, they became indignant with James and John because I think they wished they had thought of it first. And uh, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He, he takes the world's concept of leadership and turns it on its head. The uh, world thinks in terms of those under you, uh, those who serve you. Christian leadership is defined in terms of those whom you serve. And the example is our Lord down on his hands and knees, crawling around in the upper room, washing the filthy feet of the disciples, willing to do the, the trivial things, willing to do the things that no one else will do in order to serve and to minister to the person that you lead. That's what leadership entails. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, men, make your wife submit, tell her to submit. It doesn't even say, men, lead your wives. It just says, serve them, serve them, minister to them, care for them, love them. Sister, women submit to your, to your own husband, but it does not say that the man is to impose that submission upon her. And you know, so much uh, unbiblical, ungodly thinking is, is promulgated in the name of, of Scripture. Sometimes leadership is described as nothing more than male domination. And, and it's not leadership after the example of our Lord. He was humble. He was lowly. He was gentle. He was kindly. He was thoughtful. He was sensitive to the needs of those he led. He didn't bully them. He didn't browbeat them. Uh, he served them. He served them. And that's what, uh, that's what leadership uh, entails. On the uh, women's side, the wife's side, submission is enjoined. Submission to her own husband. Let me just just say again that we, we have a we have a penchant for taking good things and and making them uh, sound awful. We need to be careful that we're not ministers of death instead of ministers of life when we talk about submission, because it sounds like uh, it sounds as though we're saying that you, you know you, you you just grovel and and. Uh, it's sort of a self-denigrating thing. You deny yourself. You deny that you have any any abilities or or, or anything to to contribute to your to your husband's role. That, that's not that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. Submission is a good thing. It's a very good thing. Uh, discipline is always the route to freedom. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, just uh, enthralled by Katerina Witt and. Uh, her flawless performances in, in the Winter Olympics. And that, that came from a lifetime of discipline. You know, she couldn't eat anything she wanted to eat. She couldn't train whenever she wanted to. She had to, she had to submit to certain disciplines, and that gave her the freedom to, to excel. And uh, that's, what, that's what submission does for us. Submission is a discipline, by the way, that's enjoined upon all of us. It's not just women who are to be subject, but men are to be subject to their masters, citizens to the state, slaves to their masters, employers to their employees. And we're to be subject to one another, defer one another, uh, defer to one another, and, and uh, uh, yield to one another. 
Paul says, in fact, in the passage where he teaches the submission of, of wives in Ephesians 5, he begins that passage by saying, be subject to one another. Men are to give themselves up for their wives, as Ron so, so well put it, and, and, and women give themselves in to their, to their wives, you see. And, and what, what, what submission does, the, the freedom that that discipline gives you, is the freedom from the burden of always having to get your own way. That's a terrible burden to have to bear, to always have to get your own way. It's, a, it's remarkable you know, how we fret and stew over things, uh, often very small things that don't amount to anything. And it's so nice to be able to say, I don't even have to worry about it. I don't have to get my own way. And then to, uh, to relax in the Lord's ability to work things out. You see, that's the argument that Peter makes in First Peter. After all, the, the, the Lord is sovereign. He's greater than your husband. He can handle things his own way. And uh, so you submit yourself to someone, even someone who may be treating you somewhat unjustly, just as Jesus did, because he ultimately entrusted himself to the Father. Uh, Matheson has a a wonderful little uh, hymn that goes like this, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I, I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. It's an enormous amount of authority and power that that, uh, that comes out of that submissive at, attitude. To be willing to, to rest things in God's care. It delivers you from the feeling that you have to work this out by yourself. Uh, that's the that's the good side of, of discipline. Now I have one other passage that I'd like to have you look at. It's First Peter three, and I just have a moment to speak on this uh, particular text. It's just one verse, First Peter three seven. It's one that I intended to uh, uh, to uh, comment on when we went through the first six verses and didn't get to First Peter three seven husbands. In the same way, that is, in the same way in which Christ himself uh, lived and was submissive, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives according to knowledge. Now, the NIV says be considerate as you live with your wives, but this is one case where the NIV, I think, is, uh, uh, it does not translate the, the, the phrase well. If you have a New American Standard Bible... Or King James, it says, live according to knowledge and treat them with honor as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will, will hinder your prayers. So, husbands, we are to be in the know. We are to know how to live with our, with our wives. And the question is, where do you get a book that teaches you how to live with your wife? You know my story about the man that was rummaging around in the uh, in garage sales and found a volume entitled How to Hug. And he thought, oh my goodness, I found it. This is it. This is the one I've been looking for. My wife always wants me to be more affectionate. And, uh, and here's the answer. And he takes the book home and looks at it. And what he bought was uh, one volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica from H-O-W to H-U-G. 
and he was disappointed. The books that we read are disappointing, these technical manuals on how to, how to live with your wife. Some are very helpful, but uh, basically what, what Peter is saying here is that we need to, to live with him according to the knowledge of God. What, what do you know from God about living with your wife? What do you know about God? What, what conclusions can you draw from the book of Hosea, for example, that will help you to, to be in the know about your wife? What, what do you know from Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 and Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and all the passages that, we, passages that we've been talking about in the last uh, few weeks? Are you in the know? Do you know? He says, live with them according to knowledge. And if you do, what will happen? You'll honor them. You'll honor them. What does it mean to honor them? Never dishonor them. Never demean them. Never talk down to them. Never belittle them. Never treat them like children. Not uh, not to disgrace them in front of others. To listen to them. To take them seriously. To consider them your partner. Your equal in every way. All the things that we've talked about. That's what it means to treat them with honor. Why? Well, Peter says there are two reasons. The first is because she is the weaker vessel. Unfortunately, Peter does not tell us what he means. And, and one observation I would make at the very outset is that this is, absolute, this is comparative and not absolute. He doesn't say she's the weak vessel and you're the strong vessel. He says she is the weaker vessel. You're both weak. You are weaker. Comparative. Uh, he doesn't say she's weaker emotionally. He doesn't say she's more fragile, fragile and more easily crushed. He doesn't say any of those things. He doesn't say that she's more likely to cry or that she can't hold up her end of the responsibility. He just says she's weaker. Now, maybe if you have a New American Standard Study Bible, the you know, footnote says she's weaker physically, and they just leave it there. But even that's an extrapolation. You, you don't know. Doesn't, Peter doesn't tell us. Uh, one possibility is that uh, in, in that culture... Women were uh, weaker in the sense that they, they could not protect and defend themselves, and and uh, they, it was they, they were they were treated as a minority and often discriminated against. But uh, it, Peter doesn't tell us. You see, all he says is that you should treat her with honor because she's the weaker vessel. And one of the glories of the gospel is that the strong treat the weaker with respect. Wilhelm Nietzsche, you know, he, you know, this German philosopher, turned his whole thing on its head. You know that if you're if you're weak, you you ought to be banished from the earth. The strong will prevail. The will to power, see, is, you know, that's that was his thing, and it led to Nazism and a bunch of other terrible things. But and, and he hated Christians, absolutely hated Christians. And the reason he did is because he saw right to the heart of the matter that Christians take care of the weak. They love them. They take care of them. They provide for them. They don't exploit them. They don't run roughshod over them. They don't manipulate them. We don't, they don't use them. So whatever Peter means by her being the weaker vessel, Peter's saying, men, use your strength to be a, a husband. You know, that, that word comes from an old English word that means a house band, someone who puts his arms around the house and protects it. So use your, use your strength to care for the other person. Then the second thing that, that he says is that she is a joint heir. She's a joint heir. She's not a second-class citizen of the, of the kingdom. She, she belongs. She's a first-class citizen of the kingdom. And then there's this uh, uh, little warning here. It says, if you don't do that, 
If you don't do that, your prayers are going to be hindered. There's an integral tie between our relationship with God and our relationship with our wives. Gentlemen, if we're not living with our wives according to knowledge, then our relationship to God is going to be out of kilter. Does that make any difference how many Bible studies we're teaching or how much we know about the Bible or what positions of authority we have in the church if we're not living with our wives according to knowledge, if we're not treating them with honor, we are in big trouble spiritually. We may be able to fool everybody else, but we cannot fool our wives and we cannot fool God and we cannot fool ourselves. We know that we're empty and we're hollow. And we'll bluster and we'll bluff and we'll try to look good, but down inside we'll, we'll be empty and powerless. Because, gentlemen, our authority to lead comes from our submission to God, period. It's when we're men under authority that we're able to lead rather than to drive or manipulate or use our position of power to achieve our own ends. You see, the, the, the function of leadership is to bring God's grace into the home, to bring his power in, into play, to give direction according to his will. Not our will. It's not what I want. That's irrelevant. It's what God wants. It's his will that we want to seek in our home. And if I'm God's man, I'll lead in that, in that direction. But if we're unwilling to do so, Peter says unequivocally that our, our prayers will be hindered. Our prayers will be hindered. Now, uh, our time's gone. It's, it's really all I want to say. And uh, I hope this has stirred up the, your minds a little bit and brought, brought to your memory some of the things that we've talked about. Now, we, we want to share around the Lord's table this morning. And uh, a, a good place to begin is to think through your relationship with your wife or some other individual that may be affecting your relationship with God. Jesus said, if you come to the altar, you, you, you come to the place of worship, and you find that you have something against your brother, then leave your gift there at the altar and go back home and be reconciled with your brother and then come to worship. Now, now, what our Lord means is that if you this morning have something against your husband, against your wife, you're, you're not living according to truth in that relationship. Before you come to the Lord's presence, will you confess that? Will you confess it as sin and will you receive the Lord's forgiveness? You can do that and then you can fellowship together around, around the table.